This is episode 90 of The New Disruptors, Mikasa S. Sue Benincasa with Sarah Benincasa, permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This episode of The New Disruptors is made possible in part through the support of 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Listeners to The New Disruptors can get a $99 power pack of services for free by visiting 99designs.com slash disruptors. That's numeral 9, numeral 9, design com slash disruptors. Thanks also to our Patreon backers, Ben Wordmuller, Brian Clark, and Gravity Fish for supporting us directly. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that puts the lime in the coconut and keeps it perfectly still. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Sarah Benincasa is an author, comedian, writer, and outspoken advocate of LGBTQ youth, among many other hats she's worn. She's an expert impressionist and parodist of Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman, to name two. Sarah is the author of the novel Great and the memoir confessional Agora Fabulous, Dispatches from My Bedroom, and her third book, the novel Believers, is due out in mid-2015, while a fourth book is already underway. She's interviewed Reggie Watts and Amanda Palmer in her bathtub and posed as a nun with adult performer Stoya. We're speaking in Seattle as part of This Tour is So Gay, recently funded on Kickstarter. Sarah, thanks for being on the podcast. Hello. I I actually have something that I can announce here right now, which is that um, Believers has been moved. It's going to be in early 2016. But Mm -hmm. I do have uh, an untitled novel coming out next year in 2015. Oh, that's exciting. And then I have another, I have a self-help book. Uh, called Let's Grow Up Together, coming out in 2016. So you don't have uh, you don't have very much on your plate at all. Then, no, 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 no. But I'm I'm very pleased to be here uh, in this lovely space here in Seattle. So it's very nice to meet you. It's recording live from Ada's Books. A previous guest on the podcast was, in fact, the owner of the bookstore in which I have co-working space and we're recording this. It's magnificent. It's really wonderful. Uh, so the, I uh, I backed your Kickstarter, and I was a big. Thank you. I was a loud proponent of it online because I thought um, it was a great melding of a lot of different things, which seems to be maybe a theme in your career. Is that you had a, a an advocacy goal using crowdfunding to take yourself around the country and give back something while also performing. Mm-hmm. So you're hoping to get people to sign on to get you to come out and then do something really positive um, as well as get yourself around. It seemed like uh, like maybe the quintessence of your career, this tour, is this what everything has led up to? Um, it, you know, in a sense, I think it embodies everything that I've, I've tried to do and that I try to do um, or, the, or the best of what I want to do, which is to be entertaining, to be funny and to also convey a message. And so being able to do this tour is so gay has been really fulfilling for me. Um, at the time that we're recording, I have done gigs in uh, Los Angeles, in Denver, in Indianapolis and now in Seattle. And I will be in uh, San Francisco in September. And then I'll be in Asheville, North Carolina and Greensboro, North Carolina and Chicago, Illinois in October. And we're in 2014 in case anyone's listening in the future, (laughs) because I know people like to go back and, you know, listen. So someone could be listening in 2018 to this podcast. Um, but, and my shows are all at sarahbenincasa.com slash shows, but, um, it's been really wonderful because I get to give back. So I get to do uh, comedy and, and, do sign my books. It's a, it's a combination of, um, very selfish interests with, uh, sort of more community minded interests. And so that's been really nice because a lot of what I do in my life is very focused on me, me, me. And so it's nice to be able to go to places and to raise awareness. And in some cases be able to raise money for, um, local LGBTQ youth groups. Well, and like most writers and performers, you're running your own career. I mean, I know you have management and people you work with and book agents and all kinds of other people yeah, I have a lot of agents. in there, <laughs> but, but it's really, it comes down to you. I mean, most of us are, you know, the 99.9 percentile of, uh, or a group of, uh, people who are running their careers in some creative profession. We have to drive it. There's a very, very small number of people at the very top who have people who drive it for them. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but despite all the, I mean, listen off, we've got f- three books out. 
uh, or two, two books out, uh, two books out three, three to away. come. Yeah. Right. You've got this story, all this stuff. So you, so you're not an unknown quantity at all, but you have to drive your career. You have to make all this happen. Yeah, I do. And I, I have wonderful help. I had a manager for a few years who was quite helpful. I have, um, a, a kick-ass lawyer. Um, I have an agent for book, my agent, Sean at Kepler Speakers, who is my agent for bookings for college gigs. I have an agent for writing for television, my agent, Doug at ICM. He's delightful. Then I have my agent, Scott um, at Mendel Media, who does my books. And I might, if I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I'm forgetting someone. No, I think I, I have... Yeah, I have uh, three folks and a lawyer now is, is the, the team that is set up. And um, it's incredibly helpful. So they go out and, and forage for me and bring back the, the fruits of their labors. But I have to, when it comes to certain things like this tour is so gay, I mean, this is all me. I do have a publicist, um, Stephanie at Harper Teen, who's really great. And she has helped me to set up book tour dates. So I do have a lot of help, but ultimately the buck stops here in terms Mm -hmm. of I I have to, or maybe that's not the right um, explanation. Maybe it's the seed of any of these projects has to come from me. And then I have to actually do the work to make it happen. And so I have to fulfill promises that I make and make good on them. And sometimes that leads to a situation in which I have three books due within a six month period, which is insane. Um, But you know, I look at people who are incredibly prolific, like Neil Gaiman, who I admire so, so much. Um, and I find those people to be very inspiring. And That's good. You I could th- find them to be disabling. I sometimes look at people who are very productive and I have that, that split view. It's like, oh my God, how does this person do this much? I'll never be able to achieve it. It's like, oh my God, someone can do that much. I can certainly do what I have yeah, in front of me. Yeah, it's very, I, I mean, I tend to look at it that way. Mm. And also, um, I was constantly seeking my parents' approval when I was a little kid, as many little kids are, but I was really seeking it through achievement-oriented things, through grades and accomplishments of that sort. So um, that can lead to some bad things, but that can also lead to some good things. So when people go, um, people are like, why are you so busy all the time? I'm like, just looking for my parents' love, which I have in abundance. But um, And and they're really wonderful, and they've been incredibly like over-the-top supportive of my career and what I want to do. But um, in... You know, it's still, I think the, the need to be constantly busy comes in part from that and in part from just like keeping my demon, personal demons busy, like giving them things to play with so they won't bother me too much. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're a working stiff too, like myself and like so many other artists yeah. I talk to is right. You have is, I mean, the book thing is wonderful because once it's out there and you do the tour and you get promotion for it, you're going to sell that book forever, especially when your first book, great, is fiction. And if you're lucky, and some authors are, it's going to sell forever. I hope so. I would love it if Great just sold, you know, slow but steady forever. Although I guess it will now. I mean, that's the interesting thing about, I'm just old enough that I feel like I came from a point in which books would go out of print. And now books never go out of print. I mean, no, they, they do. Well, they well, yeah, but you can always buy an ebook. Like publishers sure. are fighting so hard to keep uh, ebooks as like the in-print rights, which is a whole dispute too. Whether something goes out of print if there's no more print copies, but someone will be able to buy your book forever, even if there are no print copies left. It'll always be available. Sure. I mean, that, yeah, that's the sort of the dream and the hope and um, of, of authors, I would imagine, and publishers alike, because then everybody continues to make money. But um, the model for publishing is quite interesting and it's changing so much. And sometimes people will ask me, well, you know, what, how do you get published? And I say, well, you can go the traditional route like I did, query, you know, go through an agent. The agent then puts out feelers. You pitch a book together or you write a book. The agent likes it. They agree to represent you and said book. Um, the publisher gives you an advance. You're probably not going to make that advance money back. Um, but if you do, if you're J.K. Rowling or something like that, um, that's wonderful. And then you continue to make royalties from that. That's great. Um, or if you want to, you can publish it yourself and just start reaping the rewards immediately. However, then you don't have a big publicity machine mm-hmm. behind you and you have no guarantee of an advance and you have to write it without having being paid to write it. So you, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, it's, there are benefits and drawbacks to each way, but, um, 
I'm like internet friends with um, this woman, Amanda Hawking, who's a really successful self-published author who then became uh, a, uh, I think St. Martin's Press bought her work and there are, you know, movie adaptations being worked on and things like that. But she really grew that herself. And so I admire that very much, certainly. I, I mean, I love working with my publisher. It's awesome. But I, I can see a world more and more in which self-publishing can be a really good route for people. I mean, she's the ultimate example, but I think she's not, um, I, I was saying her, she's not a disabling example because she didn't have, I think even like JK Rowling didn't have any idea that it would be as successful as it was. And JK oh, no. Rowling, you know, founded agent went the conventional route. And today I wonder if Rowling would have published like Amanda did and whether it would have gotten a similar success because people buy into Amanda's characters. She creates this wonderful universe that, that has driven it, but not every you can't have a thousand people like her, but hundreds of thousands of people can have some measure of success. Yeah. I mean, it does lend, there still is a certain cachet to having your book published by a, a, an outside publisher, but the concept of a vanity publisher is now being called self-publishing. And so more and more it's that that stigma is falling away. So it's really, I mean, it's a very interesting world that that we live in now um and also audiobooks are so huge just as podcasts i'm sure some people are listening on their morning commute or they're listening at the gym or they're listening whatever just to relax hanging out in their bedroom um and audiobooks are so they're so portable now and they're so popular and i'm doing um an audiobook soon which i'm excited about which i've never done before and um i'm you know it's so um it's it's great. Like stories are getting out there in these new exciting ways in all these formats. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're um, you're an expert on getting stories out in lots of formats. And, and we were talking uh, at breakfast before we record this about um, all the you know how you present yourself to the world as often as a comedian because it's maybe an easier label or it's yes. what people they think of you as. But you're you know you're a freelance writer. You're a comedian. You're a, a novel writer a nonfiction memoir writer, you're an advocate, you're an actress. I mean, there's this endless list, you know, with many different talents and abilities and obviously many interests. How did you navigate a path? Did you have something earlier in life where you said, I, in my mind, this is what I want to be in 10 years. And the path that you've taken is obviously a, a crooked one that's gone really well. What was that? If you had that vision, what was that? I always wanted to be a writer from when I was a kid. I wanted to write books. And then as I grew older, I wanted to write nonfiction. I wanted to write um, award-winning investigative journalism. And then I wanted to be um, an op-ed columnist like Molly Ivins was and continues to be a hero of mine. And I wanted to write a syndicated humor column. Um, I, Ar- Irma Bombeck and Ar- Art Buckwald and, and Molly Ivins were all heroes of mine in different ways. And so then it, it was always writing. I always wanted to be a writer. I got to college and it was sort of like, well, print is dying. You know, my print journalism major, I should change that. So I did. And um, I, but then I went to creative writing, which is just like, what do you do with that? And so I thought, well, how am I going to make money? So the initial idea was I wanted to be a college professor because I really like that setting. I love being in college. I took six years to finish college and then another like three years to do a one year master's degree program. So um, I initially... Thought, I mean, initially it was being a writer, then it morphed into being a, a writing professor. I wanted to do that. And then I didn't get into any MFA programs. And I, I've applied several times to different places and didn't get in. And so then it was, okay, I'm going to be a high school teacher and write on the side. And so I got my degree at Columbia. I, my undergrad is from Warren Wilson College with a, a healthy chunk of that spent at Emerson College, actually. My graduate degree is from uh, Teachers College at Columbia. Oh, yeah. And so... I was going to be a high school teacher. And then I, while I was doing my student teaching, someone in one of my classes had just left her job at Comedy Central. And she was like, you're really funny. I think that you should be a stand-up comedian. So I started doing stand-up comedy. And that became a different way to get my writing out there. That's the way you just became a stand-up comedian. That's like the Bob Newhart story. How did you go from... I started... Well, I started um, doing stand-up and I loved it. And I just decided yeah. I'm not going to work at schools. I'm going to work different jobs and do stand-up at night. That's usually the most traumatic experience in people's lives, though. It sounds like you must have taken to it really well. Like stand-up is, I know it's hard, it's difficult to break into, it's this this thing, but so you had a knack for it, clearly. I, I had fun with it, mm-hmm. and I did it pretty steadily for about, I would say, six or seven years. Mm-hmm. 
and writing really became the focus eventually. And so writing has been my focus. I still do, um, you know, I, I still do comedy performances. I still do, I'll do storytelling. I'll do stand up sometimes, but, um, I'll do a one woman show sometimes. Uh, I do, you know, podcasts and comedy podcasts and, and, and do, you know, when I do press things, a lot of times it's, it's a comedic take on things. They want like jokes about something. And so I'll do that. But, um, I think of myself more and more as a writer, which is what I always wanted to be. So I've sort of come full circle in that way, which is oh, cool. That's great. I, yeah. know, I hear from a lot of people who the thing that they wanted to do, they had to almost validate themselves in some other field in order to get the right attention that let them then come in at the level they wanted to in their original interests, such mm-hmm. as writing. Absolutely. I mean, I think that living being a, I admire standups because of pure standups who go out on the road and just do the damn thing. That's really like Derek Sheen here in Seattle is really a pure standup. My friend Ryan Singer, uh, who travels nationally, is a pure stand-up. My friend Adam Caton Holland is really a pure stand-up. These people do other things. They can act. They can write. They can do stuff like that. And those are just a few of the like bazillion examples. But most uh, most stand-ups do a variety of things. Like my friend Baron Vaughn is this brilliant actor, and he's also a great stand-up, and he's also a great. Um, He's a, he's a, he has, he can sing and he can dance and he can write and, you know, he's so multi-talented. And, um, so a lot of these people are really multi-talented and can do lots of things, but to be really good at standup requires a focus on it and a real, um, determination to do joke writing. And I forget who I was, I'm trying to think who I was talking to. Maybe I was talking to Matt Bronger or I think the other day about this, about how, I know people who will spend all day working on one joke or two jokes or three jokes and they'll really, you know, and, and what's the, what's the outcome? You know, what are they going to get from that? I don't know. Like, because they don't know either. It's really, uh, it's really an act of faith because you get on stage one night, a joke does great. You get on stage another night, a joke sucks. And unless you're writing specific jokes and getting paid by the joke, which some happens, you get paid by the jokes, unless you're writing for awards shows sometimes or, or submitting to different, um, like submitting to The Onion or submitting to, um, I think SNL Weekend Update still has people submit individual jokes and stuff and you get paid like per joke, I think. But generally speaking, you're working on your craft, you're working on your whole persona and there's it's not necessarily like... I'm going to spend six hours writing this joke, but this joke is going to earn me $600. That's like this joke might not earn you anything. So it's really, um, it's really interesting. I think that I was saying to someone, if you want to make a living full time in as a creative person, you need to acquaint yourself with a concept of no vacation. (laughs) I do not do vacation. I do downtime sometimes. Mm I, I once in a while, if my parents are like, let's go on a family trip. Sure. I will do vacation, but I'm always engaged. Like I'm always engaged in some fashion, something related to, to my career. I think. Let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, 99designs. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you probably know that I was trained in graphic design and worked as a typesetter. I know how the field works. It's a process of exploration and creativity. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to work in when you're trying to create something that expresses an idea, a thought, or even concrete information in a graphic way. It's a means of communication. And there are many people who can design something effective for you. The trouble is trying to find the right thing that you need at the time you need for the price you want and get a consistent result. This is where 99designs offers a unique deal. They connect you with over 310,000 graphic designers in their worldwide network. They've vetted these folks, and they know they do quality work, and they monitor them over time. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee on any work that you get through them, and they can help you get logos, websites, T-shirts, car wraps, anything that you can get designed, they can help you make a match. And you don't just get hooked up with one designer. Instead, you pick what you need, there's a flat price associated with it, and then designers compete for your business. They actually show you sketches and ideas or even completed work. You pick what you want and then you work through to completion with that designer. The whole thing takes 
a week, sometimes less, to get a high-quality result from a professional designer, again, with this 100% money-back guarantee. So you get a look at a lot of ideas. You don't have to contract with someone long-term, and you get what you want. And if it doesn't work out, you've got a, a way out of that as well. This is what 99designs is doing. It's great for the designers to get this constant flow of work vetted through 99designs to help them. It's great for you because you know you're going to get a consistent result backed up by a guarantee, as well as having access to a huge number of people people you otherwise would have to find one by one. It's a terrific site, a terrific idea, and it helps everyone involved. And to sweeten the deal, 99designs has a special offer for you, listener to The New Disruptors. If you go to their website, you can get a $99 power pack of services for free right now. Visit the URL, 99designs.com slash disruptors. Now that's numeral nine, numeral nine, designs.com slash disruptors. And you'll be able to get that $99 power pack of services for free today. Give them a try and let them know we sent you. And now, back to the podcast. Have you ever had a full-time job where you had things like vacation and sick leave and, and all yes, the rest of it? Yes, Um I mean, I had a really fun, weird like? job. <laughs> uh, I was a host on Sirius XM for a few years oh, yeah. on a show called Get In Bed, which was a show about sex and dating on a now defunct channel called Cosmo Radio. And so that was like, um, you know, I had you know, specific vacation time, but that was weird. That was a creative job. Yeah. I mean, I've had, yes, I've had, I worked briefly for Planned Parenthood, like sort of corporate headquarters. I worked for like a seven months or eight months at pharmaceutical executive magazine. Um, I did AmeriCorps for a year teaching. And so I had vacation days there, but um, I, I had a lot of like different weird jobs Mm -hmm. over the years that just didn't fit the sort of corporate model. You've had the experience though. That's the, that's the thing I wonder is I've, I, on this show, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so happy. on this show and, and just in when I talked to so many, you know, I've talked to like, seems like thousands of people now because of Kickstarter campaigns and other kinds of ways in which people set out independently to run whatever career it is. It's an interesting split between people who found some, uh, knack or niche or something. And like they go straight from college or whatever they're doing in their teens into basically making this melange of a living for the rest of their lives, um, whether they're in their twenties or fifties or, or beyond now and other people who went through a series of jobs and none of them fulfilled them. And they realized the job world really probably doesn't fit the kinds of things I want to do. Uh, so it sounds like you went through part of that journey. It's nice to mm-hmm. make a- paychecks are awesome. The serious thing I didn't realize that's great. I didn't realize they had a uh, host as employees. So many companies try to, use contractors and limit the amount of time they have and so forth. So you actually had a, a full-time no, I job. Was full-time. That's fantastic. Yeah. I was full-time at Sirius XM for two years from uh, 2008 to 2010. And I did a show um, eight to 11 East, five to eight West every uh, weeknight. And um, so that was really interesting. I produced and hosted, uh, co-hosted a show um, and it was a call-in show and it was great. And uh, I was able, I had a boss who enabled me to go, come out to L.A. And, and sometimes record out of Sirius in L.A. or, or do the live show. Um, and, you know, that was very important, especially when I started to perform a one-woman show called Agora Fabulous and telling stories about, um, funny stories about being mental. And so um, I, uh, I started doing that in like 2009. So in 2009 and 2010, I spent a lot of time on the road traveling. And so I used my off time from Sirius to do that. And I was able to come out to LA for meetings and things like that, which was really important. And, um, yeah, so now that, then that became the book, Agora Fabulous, the book, and now it's a pilot and it's, um, being executive produced by Ben Stiller's company and Red Hour and by Diablo Cody. And we are waiting as we speak to hear if the pilot will get ordered by the network that oh we're at. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Yeah. When would that air? Would it air in the... In- well, it would... Um, I don't know because they by, they would order the pilot, which means they would actually shoot the pilot. And then after that, there's another level where they look at all the pilots that they've ordered and they go, okay, do we want to order this to series? So it doesn't mean yeah. that it would actually be a TV show. Yeah. But they hired me to write the, uh, to write the adaptation. Oh, that's Which was cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, this is that chain of things. Like, how do you, you know, it's hard to look even at one's own life and, and say, here's the path I went through. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious actually about one element of it too, is I know you wrote for nerve.com and you mm-hmm. had this serious show. How much is like, like, uh, I guess like sex advice or maybe it's a broader category. How much is that part of what 
you want to do for other people or with other people. It's interesting to me. It's fun. For a while, that was my, my sort of thing, was I'd come on to shows as a sexuality expert or whatever, which is just bullshit. No one's a sexuality expert. Um, you know, maybe Masters and Johnson were sexuality experts, but they couldn't even get their private life together. So <laughs> nobody is the, you know, you are, you're more a sexuality student. And I think that I was, it was something I was really intrigued by. Um, it was fun. I had adventures and getting to talk to people and interview people and learn about products and things. And, you know, that was the sex and love thing was what I did for two years at Sirius XM. I had done stuff on nerve.com before then. And I still am called upon sometimes to talk about love advice or I write a column for Jezebel called the friend zone, which is very consciously not about sex advice. It's a friendship advice column. And, um, so it's, you know, it's interesting, it's fun, but there's certain things that I don't do anymore. Like I, I got called in for an audition for a series that's going to be on Wii TV that's called Sex Box, where people fuck in a box. <laughs> they fuck in a box. I would not have to fuck anyone. Um, they fuck in a box. And then people like in, in England, I think this is where the show's from, people like Dan Savage and different sort of celebrities um, give the people advice on the sex that they just had. So do the viewers see this? No, or no? you do not see so it. So the you experts just, see it and call They you. don't see it. They hear they, about it. The they, people go, they greet the people, they make jokes, the people go have sex in a box people come out talk about what happened and then the experts and the funny people give them commentary and you know i was just like i don't need to audition for sex box yeah i don't need to do it like it just you know it's been ordered to series i was just auditioning to be uh, to i don't know if i was gonna if it was a host audition or what um and god bless the people who are doing it it's a hilarious idea i'll probably watch it i think it's crazy but for me personally at this point in my career i was like i'm writing books targeted to teenagers now um i'm traveling around to colleges talking about mental health awareness i'm adapting my memoir as a as a tv show for the usa network like i'm doing these different things how does it wasn't a moral judgment it was how would sex box further me toward a goal do i want to continue do i want to go back to focusing mostly on sex and sexuality and the answer was no so i was like all right so i turned it i turned down the audition and i'm sure they saw millions of people it's not like special that, that, that that they called me in i appreciated that they did but um I just was like, no, this just isn't my thing anymore. I still like sex, but sex box, if they had sex box had called me up in 2010, I would have gone. But, you know, it's 2014 and I'm a bit different and my focus is a bit different. I don't, I just didn't see how sex box would further my goal of being a, a well-known uh, and well-regarded novelist or, or television writer. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm still laughing at the show. Name. It's a great. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, there. What's the show on now? The reality show where everyone on it is naked and they have, you know, naked and afraid, or naked and da- the, dating, or- the naked dating show. Oh, there's a naked dating. There's a naked show. dating show. Everyone's naked during. I mean, I think that's great. It's hilarious. I'm glad that we're getting more cool with nakedness. Yeah, if, as long as they don't play culture. it for, I mean, if it, if they play it entirely for laughs, it sucks. If they play it for a combination of where people are, like, I hate laughing at, right? Mm-hmm. Like laughing yeah. with, laughing is the with, thing. Or- and it's like if people are in on it, then it's great. Uh, you know, that's why I think like original Daily Show versus later Daily Show or some of the Letterman stuff. At one point, it's like I don't like. I don't like humor that makes fun of people, but if people are willing participants and they know, they know what's going to happen and they're part of it, that seems to be more, I don't know, at least for me, that seems to be more um, socially beneficial as well as humorous at the same time, as opposed to. I like fun. a true, you know, bring, speak, obviously comedians want to speak truth to power. And the, I, there's this idea that I firmly believe in that the jester can say things to the king that no one else can. Like, yeah when Stephen Colbert did the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which was incredible. I think that was 2010. I'm not... No, 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 no. That was, was Bush a, era. That was like 2007, 2006. Oh, yeah. He's making jokes about Cheney. And it was just right brilliant. There. He yeah. was criticizing the war and being really amazing. And so that, to me, is like the height of what comedy can do. Um, and a shitty thing to do is, oh, look at that fatty. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, you know, there's look at that fatty and there's look at that asshole who's leading our nation into war and is an imbecile or look at that fat person. Ha ha, they're fat. One of those things is awesome and one of them is not awesome. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the naked show goes. Um, I think sex box will probably be amazing. I think it will also ultimately be educational for people and, and will be subversively educational. And I love subversion, which is why I will enjoy it as a fan and a viewer, I think, depending on how they do it. But 
as far as me being a part of sex box and, you know, I was just like, this just feels like something I, I'm not doing anymore. So you've evolved in your career, but I mean, I don't know if it's, is it a seriousness thing? Like, I mean, how you market yourself as a novelist and nonfiction writer, do you need to, are you concerned about the kind of interviews you get when you travel and tour, the kinds of reviews you get? Is it that, or is it how you want to present yourself just period to the world? I just, you know, something about my background as a high school teacher still informs what I do now in the sense that if I have kids, like I write, I will say all kinds, I will say bad words. I will talk about my own stuff on podcasts. I'll talk about whatever. I'll go on TV and talk about whatever the fuck. But I just didn't like the idea of one of my younger readers being like, Oh, I'm going to go see her on TV. Uh, and let me watch sex box. There's just something about it. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the, the proximity to, it, it doesn't make sense. The proximity to sex as performance, because like, I, I, I think the adult film industry is really interesting and I know, know some people in the adult film industry. And so it's not like I'm prudish. It just, I just was like, this doesn't fit right now. This doesn't make sense for me to do sex box. It just did. Sometimes you just get that instinct. I mean, there've been times when I interviewed at, at corporate places where I was like, you know what? This advertising agency is not the right fit for me. I can't say why it's not. Or like when I went to see George Washington university in, um, in DC and I looked at that and I looked at American university when I was a kid and American university, I didn't end up going there, but American university felt like, okay, I can hang out here. And for whatever reason, GW at that point in time, when I was 16 years old, just didn't. And it didn't mean there was anything wrong with it. It just, it's like when you go on a date and you just know someone's not a right fit. That's how it was for me with sex box. I was like, nah, I think you're nice, but it's not going to work out. Sex box. That's very funny. It's, it reminds me. It makes me think like it's a Thirty Rock show that got actually made. Like uh, exactly, it sounds like a joke. Like Goldbox. Goldbox was a great joke. Uh, well, so in the uh, this direction you're taking right now, and, and um, this the Kickstarter you did in your current tour, uh, you've talked a lot in support of. And this is um, this is this thing that's a long acronym, or not acronym, but a series of letters. Now it's LG. BTQ is kind of the current mm-hmm. rubric. And when I grew up, before we were podcasting, I tell you, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which I mentioned way too often on this podcast. It was a very liberal and open place. And you know, when I grew up, it was like you call it like uh, referring to homosexual people as gay uh, was like this incredibly liberal, like accepting thing. Mm-hmm. But that now it's exclusionary because there's so many different terms, people, concepts, uh, and you know, there's even more like LGBT. BTQ doesn't even encompass everything now. Yeah, it's LGBTQA. I think A is asexual. Right. I'm not sure. Sometimes, like sometimes queer is a great um, overall overarching head for like headline. But um, then there's some people who don't like it, and in the end, you're going to insult some people. Some people need to just fucking deal with the fact that you know language isn't going to encompass every minute detail. But we can do the best possible job that we can do, and language evolves and changes, and so. you know, uh, for me, you know, uh, queer is a great is a great sort of catch all, but um, for some people it sucks. So you know, you just kind of on a, you pick what you can to work with. I'll say LGBTQ to when I'm talking about massive groups and with individual people, I'll talk to them and see what they prefer, and you know, that's a good thing. Um, what what led you to to this particular area? I mean, I realize there's a there's so much abuse and intolerance and, you know, even like killings of people, especially in the trans world has become out as I think has become, um, I don't want to say, gosh, you know, if you say, well, lesbians and gays and bisexual are much more accepted in society, you can say, sure, there are measures by that's true. We have marriage equality is starting to roll across the country. And, and so there's a statement in which you could say that's become more normative. That doesn't mean that people who identify as, you know, LGB face necessarily less harassment maybe they do but but the trans community i think has newly there's become a new awareness among people yeah. outside of trans it, is the next how great frontier it, yeah, like, and how complicated yeah. you know in the violence they experience routinely it's you know often in countries outside america but but here as well it's a big community to embrace what led you to to i don't want to specialize or to speak to youth in that you know broad but also still marginalized community well i mean i'm I'm queer. I'm bisexual. Um, I am dating a man, um, but I am, and bisexual feels like a weird term because it feels like 50, 50 and I'm not 50, 50, anything. Um, I'm 11% Italian according (laughs) to, uh, genetic testing that I got done. And I'm largely, um, 
largely actually Palestinian and Druze with a touch of Ashkenazi Jewish and some Irish and English in there and then some Basque and Spanish. So I encompass multitudes. But um, I, uh, you know, I just think uh, I get a lot of letters from kids. I used to do a podcast called Sex and Other Human Activities, which is still ongoing. It was I co-hosted it with Marcus Parks for Cave Comedy Radio. And now it's co-hosted by Jackie Zabrowski and Marcus Parks. And we would get a lot of we would talk about sex, but really about mental health. And so we would get a lot of feedback and a lot of letters from kids, sometimes kids who are gay, sometimes kids who are dealing with sexuality. And and when I was a high school teacher, when I did AmeriCorps, um, it just really struck me how many kids I had who were queer, who needed extra help because they were extra bullied or they were extra unaccepted. Or even if they had great family and great friends, the culture didn't accept them. And so there wasn't really a role model for them uh, or a place at the table for them to quote a, a title of a Bruce Bauer book from many years ago. And so it just felt right to me. And I'm someone who has struggled with depression and anxiety disorder, panic disorder and agoraphobia my whole life. And so I see so many, you know, such so many gay teens who deal with depression and who deal with anxiety, understandably, circumstantial, not even necessarily like genetic in their case, but just like, wow, things fucking suck. I'm sad and also scared. So I just wanted to reach out to that group. And so here in Denver, the uh, the organization I'm going to donate to um, here is called, uh, well, it's called Lambert House. Mm-hmm. And they do LGBTQ, um, they, they work with a lot of LGBTQ homeless youth, which is a huge problem. I'm, did I say Denver? I meant Seattle. You did say Denver. I said Denver. I apologize. Sorry, Denver sorry. was a place called The Center. Like, where am I? I'm on tour. Where am I? And we're sitting next to a map of Berlin, which does not help. Does not help at all. Um, but um, so, yeah. So, uh, so it's just, it was just important to me to give back to that community. I mean, I didn't have any queer identity as a kid. I, I actually was, was pretty homophobic and certainly transphobic well into my 20s and homophobia i started to get past in my teens Uh, transphobia um took longer it took into like my mid to late 20s to start to gain an awareness of like how ignorant i was and and you know how um inadvertently hateful and ignorant and so i guess you know, had I had a better understanding of those things as a kid, I would have understood myself better. And so I just really believe that these LGBTQ youth organizations do excellent work with kids and they, they save lives. And a lot of, when I travel to colleges, I speak about suicide prevention and about mental health. And, um, a lot of kids who stop and talk to me afterwards are LGBTQ kids who are like, holy shit, what am I doing with my life? I'm gay. I'm coming out. I can't tell my family. College is a whole new world to me. And um, so it's really interesting. Um, It's it's been, you know, it's been a good experience for me to get to do that. It's been very fulfilling. And how did you come about to, um, to do a Kickstarter to support the tour? I mean, I realize when you're on a book tour, often your publisher, you're really lucky and your publisher supports you and there's enough pre-sales and all the other factors mm-hmm. that go into it. A publisher will underwrite a tour. And so, um, uh, you know, your past books, your future books, hopefully some or all that expense gets covered. You sell books. It's yeah. A great with thing. Agora Fabulous, um, they funded a tour for me mm-hmm. with, uh, with, it was through William Morrow, which is part of HarperCollins, with Harper Teen, uh, with Great, they didn't fund a tour for me. So, and that's fine because because tours don't really sell books. That's the dirty right. little secret. Tours are fun for authors, it, for authors who are performative and who like to have face-to-face interactions mm-hmm. with readers. But tours really don't sell books. I thought it was for the co- local coverage, isn't it, to get more awareness so you get lo- radio interviews, newspaper coverage. Sure, that absolutely. Kind of there's that too. Yeah. But uh, you know, even with that, there's no method to selling books. It's a complete alchemical. And anyone who tells you they know exactly how to sell books is full of shit. Um, there are people who will charge you money for seminars and they'll say, how you sell your book? It's bullshit. Mm. Um, it, it is magical. And there are things you can do. You can get the books in front of the right eyeballs. Like you can get, make sure that there are ARCs, advanced reader copies at Good Morning America. Mm-hmm. But unless you are able to bribe the booker there you have no guarantee that you're going to get a space on there. Now, if you look at someone like Neil Gaiman or Stephen King or someone of that, of that caliber, like they have built such a career that of course people are going to show up. Thousands of people are going to line up for them and, 
and such, but, but, um, and their success enables smaller authors like me, or that's the idea. It enables publishers to take risks on smaller authors like myself. But of course I, you know, I had no, I was not upset or, or, or surprised that they didn't fund a tour for, um, for great. Um, it didn't bother me at all. I was like, all right, cool. Well, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to ask people if they'll like give me money to go on a tour. And Harper Teen has been wonderful because I was able to raise $15,000 through the generosity of people like you, 300 people. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then I went back to them and I was like, Hey, I I've got my own money now. Yeah. Um, all these people ponied up for it. It's really awesome. These are the cities I want to hit that I promised to hit. Can you help me find bookstores? And they were like, yeah. So I've gotten the benefit of, of oh, them doing great. bookings for me and publicity. And Stephanie Hoover is the name of my publicist. She's great. She just started there and she's been like a and rock star. And then you're not dealing with, right, among other things, you know, making sure the bookstores get books in stock and all the stuff the publishers are great at when you're on tour. You don't have to do that. Exactly. Part. Like I was able to say to my publisher, hey, totally understand that you didn't put up the money. I get that. I went out and got the money from from people who are invested in the work for whatever reason. I want to take it on the road to them. Uh, can you help me do that? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And so it's great. Yeah. So we have sold more books because of it, which is rad. We haven't, you know, it's I, what a book tour doesn't is probably not going to make your book a bestseller, but it is going to create relationships and get more local coverage, which is good, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and then you just see what happens. But um, for me, it's been so I for me, I decided to do it as like, all right, I'm going to sell books, but I'm also going to do shows and I'm going to make sure that I uh, financially um, support a place nearby like a place and i've tried in most places that i've gone to stay in like a local area or a local um venue i didn't do that this time like locally owned you know instead of like like i stayed at the courtyard marriott this time but usually i try to stay at like a funky bed and breakfast and i try to you know i always try to eat at restaurants that are locally owned and uh and then also to donate or to raise funds for a local place um, so it's been fun. I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And every town has its own flavor, which is really neat. I get to see the U.S. And I'll be in Toronto and Vancouver at some point next year. So I get to see some of Canada, too. What's the um, – and so in your actual event, I realize – what do you do during the tour part? What's the pr- It's different it- in every single mm-hmm. town. So here I did something called Literary Deathmatch, which was for Bumbershoot. Mm-hmm. And then – I did my This Tour is So Gay event was at University Books, and which was great. And then we had like, I guess, like 25 people, which is mm-hmm. actually, or 30 people, which is like amazing for a bookstore event. And um, so we, uh, I did, I told a story, I told a funny story. And then my friend Derek Sheen, who's a comedian, told a funny story about awkward adolescence and craziness. And then I read some from, um, I read a chapter of my book. And then we took pictures of people and signed stuff, and it was really cool. But in some places, it's a show. Like in San Francisco, right now, I don't have a bookstore gig lined up. Um, I am doing just going to do a storytelling show, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a benefit for a local youth organization. So, so in some cities, it's a bookstore event. In some cities, it is a just live theater. It just depends. Like I, it's just me. It's the me show, and I show up and do stuff in some capacity. So it's really great that people were so willing to be like, "All right." So I basically presented it as like, "Okay, I'm going to go to 15 cities. Now it's 17. I'm going to go to 15 cities. I'm going to raise awareness about LGBTQ youth issues, and I'm going to like tell stories and stuff." And people were like, "All right, <laughs> sure. Here's money," which was amazing. Like I love that crowdfunding experience, and Kickstarter was great to me they were very helpful too yeah and i know there were points in it like i was one of the uh, I'm, I'm often the rooting squad for people because i've seen enough now and i know the patterns and i've seen some of the you know the there's a lot of sites that do the financial analysis of the the arc of a kickstarter so at some point you cross 50 percent. i'm like oh good oh good because for you you're only looking to raise fifteen thousand dollars you raised above that and for smaller amounts like that the odds are like it's something like 97 percent of kickstarters that pass half their funding yes, goal reach 100%. Funded. And once you hear that, you're like, okay, so you're just sweating bullets. You hit 50%. You're like, okay, it's not guaranteed, but now the statistics are in my favor as mm-hmm. opposed to necessarily uh, against me. But when you hit that point, I mean, this is the, the consequence of this is this is something you wanted to do as opposed to a lot of Kickstarters, people put their, are kind of putting their stake down. You know, it's like, this is the next thing I'm doing in life. For you, I thought this was great because this was something that was beneficial. Like it had a good benefit for yourself. It had a component about self, but it's also you're going out to do stuff for other people without it yeah, being a charity. Yeah, that's the primary. Thing. Like I use the the 
bookstore events and theater events are kind of an excuse for me to spread my message. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, it's a books and comedy tour. <laughs> it's a book and comedy tour. So I, I kind of do what, what seems appropriate for each town and what seems like, you know, what the venue wants, what local people tell me on Twitter, like kind of cook up what's right for each town and what I have time to do as well. Because, you know, that 15 grand for 17 cities it's not I, I ended up with about thirteen five of that, mm-hmm. I think, after some people's oh, yeah. stuff doesn't go through and other times they and Amazon takes out stuff and Kickstarter takes it up. So you ended up with like thirteen five. So that's thirteen five. And then you also have um, fulfillment. So yeah. a lot of the stuff I did in terms of fulfillment was like doing a ten minute chat about puppies or doing a thirty minute life coaching session or stuff that doesn't cost money, just time. But then I'm also providing books, so I have to buy those books, mm-hmm. and so um, that's part of the cost that's built in. And you, of course, have transportation and board room and board and incidentals, and in some cases, taking people out to dinner or taking people out to lunch or things like that. And so all of that is built in. So I was talking to my accountant about it, and hey, Russell, who's great. Um, Altman CPA, they're excellent. They're out of New York. And so uh, I was talking to him and he was like, well, you're going to make some money off this, right? And I was like, nope, no, that's definitely no. not how it was done. It's a Kickstarter. I was like, nope, uh-uh. And he was like, okay. And then he just rolled with it because he's used yeah. to me. We've worked together for like eight years. He was like, okay. And I was like, yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so that's what this is. But it's interesting because you, you, you put a lot of effort into, I mean, I think that outward facing thing, like there's a good social goal for what you're doing. You're doing something that you want to do. Mm-hmm. The thing is important for other people, but this is an awareness thing. This is part of your ability to shape your own career yeah. is that you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing. I put myself on the line, which is, I've done a Kickstarter and it's terrifying too. You put it yes. out there and you're like, do people love me? Right. And, and also to a lot of money? people think that are like, wait, you're asking for, I used to hate yeah. Kickstarter. I was like, you're asking I for know. money. Fuck you. Right. What's wrong with you? And then I was like, wait, this is actually awesome. <laughs> But it's what it's voting. It's like it's love expressed in the form of money mm-hmm. or something. But it's love like specifically people who know you. You get the the circle of friends and colleagues and so forth who want to support you directly. You have this circle of of fans. People love your work and they have some connection with you. And then you have another circle that's bigger, which might be very loosely connected. But it's people like oh, I never heard of Sarah Benincas and. Oh, I like what, oh, this is really, oh, and oh, I know yeah. so-and-so, I'm going to back this. So you have that, like the, the spheres and sometimes your outer sphere, the friends of friends of friends can be huge, especially for like hardware products as right. opposed to tours. But even in, in this case, I'm sure there are people like, you know, of your 300 plus people who backed it, you know, some of those people very, very well. Some of them are probably your best friends. Oh yeah. And some brother. people are like, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> so my like mom. I don't have no, I, this person doesn't follow me on Twitter. So, got somebody no donated, you know, 400 bucks and I did not know this person at I all. I think and what you're doing we, is we went out to have a wonderful dinner and it was great and we're gonna do the puppy chat we're gonna do the all the other stuff and this person will get a book and like it just i'm just i'm really honored um it's important to me that i fulfill people's expectations that they get back what they want Mm -hmm. um and it was important to me to be you know relatively transparent like Here's what I'm going to do. Raise awareness and do books and comedy stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tell stories. And, you know, without promising the moon, without mm-hmm. being like, you know, ah. But in, I, I do – and it's also important to me to try in each town. Um, I wasn't able to do it in Indi- Indianapolis because um, the person I wanted was actually out of town. But um, it's important to me in each town to also incorporate, like, somebody who lives locally – um, so in Denver, I had Adam Caton Holland and Mara Wiles um, tell stories, and they were wonderful. Here in Seattle, Derek Sheen, and then um, I'll do I'll have more people in future, which I'm excited about. So yeah, it's it's just fun. It's a it's yeah. honestly a cool way for me to do my what I love and to go travel and meet people and see the world, and it's just really great. Um, so of course I need to give back because. Uh, a lot of the people who've donated are from these communities that I've promised I'll go to over the course of 2014 and 2015. So I need to like put something back into their community and not, you know, just abscond with the money and, you know, eat McDonald's like a luxurious <laughs> woman. <laughs> the 99 cents value meal is uh, oh, the height so of luxury. I could hide, with that 13, five, I actually scored. I could fucking buy so many 99 cent value that's right. meals. That's a, right. That's the Simpsons taco episode. I have a thousand tacos. Uh, the um, so let me ask you one last thing because you do so many things and uh, I'm familiar myself with trying to keep plates spinning. Mm. So you're writing books, you're yes. touring, you've mm-hmm. got all these other projects going on. Um, 
do you have a secret for interleaving and keeping all this going or is it a mad scramble as is in my life? Um, oftentimes it's motivated by panic, fear, and the absolute fear of disappointing someone, mm. <laughs> uh, anyone. Um, but specifically like people I really care about and people who I, I work with closely. Um, so it's that, uh, here's what I'm I can tell you what I'm going to try my experiment for September because I'm working on three books at once is to prioritize believers, which is due in the beginning of October. My next draft is due. So that gets priority. Um, then the secondary priority will, uh, well, actually, no, doing my tax. I didn't get to do my taxes yet for last year. I filed an extension. So speaking of Russell, um, my priority has to be doing my taxes. And I'll make sure he hears my, this. A little bit, yeah, Russell, listen. It's okay. Um, uh, do, uh, you know, I got to, um, each day I'm going to devote a couple hours to taxes until that's done excuse me, my expenses, because freelancers, you know, we have a million expenses. Um, and then several hours each day to believers and a couple hours each day to um, another novel project. And so there's like, I'm doing a little bit, you know, I, what, what, what am I going to, what, what is screaming for my attention? So the taxes are screaming for my attention. And then believers is, is, not screaming, but is talking very loudly. And then this third project, this novel project is speaking in very strong tones, but not as loudly as the other things. So I, I deadlines help man. like if you can, at least if, if you, even if you don't have a, a contract or whatever, I tell my writing students, I also teach writing. Um, I teach online writing classes through a, a place called writing pad, mm. which you can check out writing pad. I don't know. Maybe it's .com. Um, so I tell my students like, make a deadline for yourself or be responsible. The, the benefit of taking a writing class is having to be responsible to other people to produce writing. Yeah. So get a friend to give you a deadline, like get someone to impose a deadline on you. That's, I mean, I'm very deadline oriented. I will miss deadlines, but I'm very deadline oriented. So it really helps to have someone like I just did a bus bust magazines cover story for the October, November issue is with Lizzie Kaplan. And yeah. so I interviewed her, which was so fun. That's Thank neat. you. It was great. I got to meet her. It was so cool. And having a deadline was incredibly helpful for that. Right. They're going to go to press at some point. And if you're not done, Mm -hmm. that's, it has to be done. That's a huge car crash. It is going to be, you know, I'm going to be, yeah, they're fucked. Right. So like, oh, okay. Emily Rems, the editor in chief is going to be fucked over. If I don't get her this, I will do this. (laughs) It's like that personal relationship that gets to me. Like it's not just some faceless person. It's a human being whose work I've been an editor before. So I know that, you know, your life is affected negatively if your writer doesn't come through. So I think about the personal connections and about fulfilling my promises and also my terror of disappointing people. And it all sort of comes to this weird ball and also my desire to produce great work because I I think Dorothy Parker said um, something to the effect of, I hate writing, but I love having written. Yeah, I think she said that. Yes, and that is how I feel. I hate writing, and I love having written. It's uh, Douglas Adams' famous quote: "Is I love deadlines. I especially love the sound of them wishing past." Yes, absolutely. And I the, totally understand that's what the that. Well, it seems like you have a very productive few years. You have your next couple of years I locked up jobs. with work to I got do. Some jobs going on. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time out to talk for this of podcast. Course. Pleasure to have thank you, Sarah. You, Glenn, this was so great. Thank you so much. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.